give to those missionary causes. You give to an American who goes over there to do some work. But then secondly, you support that American and then you get to support a national missionary who comes to faith in Christ, and then he goes out or she goes out and also becomes a missionary. So it's pretty cool. Um, I want to give a little bit of a shout-out to our team over here because I was supposed to do the video first and then come up and do uh, uh, um, Advent. And you guys didn't even know that, you know, because they just rolled with it. And I started laughing in the middle because I messed it all up, you know. But anyway, so you guys, you're so great. Much love. Much love. All right, they don't care. Okay, anyway. Um, So look, in this Advent, one of the things that we read... We read the Advent, and is and, and sometimes you kind of gloss over this Christmas story, you know, because you heard it a lot. But I want to read it to you again. Um, verse five says this, and this is something that had Joseph said it, he probably gets like slapped for, right? But but Luke wrote it, and so it doesn't happen. But verse five in that Luke passage, it says uh, Joseph's going to Nazareth, right? And it says he took with him Mary, his fiancee, who was now obviously pregnant. And I don't know what exactly that describes, but I think it's like saying he took with him his fiance Mary, who was now a bit irritable, right? And he took with him his, my wife's not in here, so I can say what I want. He took with him his uh, fiance Mary, whose uh, ankles had swollen. He took with him his fiance, who asked for uh, olives all hours of the night. He took with him his fiance, who was now waddling noticeably. You know the, you know, you know what I'm talking about. And everything that that describes, who is now obviously pregnant, uh, a young girl of 14, who now obviously thought that she looked at her belly and thought, "I will never be the same again." Right? Because that's what all young pregnant women think. I just love all that Luke leaves there to imply. She's now obviously pregnant. Um, I, I have come really over the course of just this this year and, and kind of preaching through this and, then, and so walking through it in the text. I've really come to love this real authentic Christmas story. You know, that gets beyond, this is beautiful, right? But this is not exactly what this looked like. You know, and I've just become come to love this story where it's like a a 14 year old has a baby in a dark barn and and this young girl doesn't have beautiful porcelain skin like this. And and two Middle Eastern people don't have a European baby with blue eyes and blonde hair. You know, like the story looks a lot different than that. And I've come to really appreciate that. It's a story where you've got working class people, so the shepherds, who are like the welders and the carpenters and the mechanics and, and that type of this day, right? Who are, who are dirty during the day and all those different kind of things. And these are the people that get to announce that the biggest event in history has now happened. And man, I just love that part of the story. In this story, when you read the real Christmas story, the non-religious elites play all the key roles. Right, an unmarried girl has a baby, and uh, an older couple is having a baby. Which in this day, this is an older couple, and uh, and and so what we know is is if you were in that day, if you were older and you hadn't had a child, people thought that you were cursed. And so you've got these two people. The story of Jesus begins in Luke with Elizabeth and Zechariah, two cursed people who are going to give birth to a son who's going to be crazy. And Scripture says he's going to eat locusts and wild honey and he's going to dress crazy. You're going to have this guy born to two people who are supposedly cursed, but he's going to be the person to travel all around and tell people that Jesus has finally come. 
And man, I just love when you start peeling back the layers of this story. And, and what's pretty interesting is there is a king in this story. But the king who is famous for bringing peace to all of Rome, if anybody can like go way back in the vault, and if you remember the, the Pax Romana, do you remember that? I'm sure I said it wrong. But it's like the peace of all Rome. He brings peace to the entire Roman Empire, and he's a huge, huge deal. But in this story, the king who's mentioned is just a tiny little footnote. And so I love this story because if you felt like in some way you didn't connect with religious people and they didn't connect with you, and when you get together with family and you talk about religion, you just try to avoid the topic because it tends to be a little bit controversial, and all those different kind of things. If you thought that that's you, therefore this story is not for you, then you are, you are exactly on the wrong side because this story is all about non-religious elites playing big roles in telling Jesus' story. The truth is that people like like you and me, and maybe less me just because I'm a pastor and I'm standing on stage, um, but it's, it's about people like us who are absolutely featured in it. It's about a Messiah who came for you and for me, and it's about a Messiah who said regularly, I didn't come for people who are self-righteous and think they already have it together. Instead, I came for people that would just humbly seek me, recognizing that, hey, I'm sick and I need something, and what I really need is a Savior. And I just love, as you peel back the layers of the story, who it's really about. So here we go. For the next few minutes... We're just going to look at this part of the Christmas story that involves people that are seeking, more so than people who are, who are elite and feel like they've already found the thing. And so the people who are seeking in this Christmas story is the Magi. And the Magi are people who are all about finding truth in places where nobody else is looking. They're people who say, some parts of the story don't sound right to me, or some people that I've met in church and my church history and all that stuff doesn't seem right to me, so I'm going to spend some time and really look for some of the truth. And maybe, these may be some people that you and I can really connect with. Because when you get past Christmas lights and, and, and the beauty of Christmas story and Christmas trees and all those different kind of things, there's a lot of question about what really happened at Christmas. Or maybe it goes way beyond Christmas and you wonder, is all this stuff really true? Can I really trust Jesus with my finances? Can I really trust Jesus to take care of real problems in my real life? Is the whole rest of the story really true? Because when it comes down to it, a lot of us are really people who ask a lot of questions and seek some real answers. And so I think that we can really connect with these magi here. So in Matthew chapter 2, we find their story. Matthew chapter 2, and and as you flip there, uh, I'll tell you, I spent yesterday with just the opposite of wise men. I spent yesterday with my family, and they're not here, so, you know. My mom listens to the podcast, but she's the only one. Um, But uh, I spent yesterday with my family, 25 people crammed into two small rooms, um, many of whom haven't spoken to one another since the previous Christmas, and probably for a pretty good reason. Um, It wasn't terrible, but it wasn't far from it. No, I had a good time. Um, In that group... As I picture them, and I would imagine as you picture Christmas, and whether you do Christmas dinner and everybody gets around a big table, or you just all eat in front of the TV with TV trays or whatever it is, you can imagine kind of everybody who's there. And the truth is, when you get together with your family, there's somebody in your family that really closely connects with somebody in this Christmas story. 
So there's like a Mary and a Joseph, and maybe it's like a, a young person or a young married couple, and they're trying to figure some things out, and they seem a little bit dazed and confused. And maybe they're like Mary and Joseph, and they know that they're part of something bigger, but, but, but there's still a lot that they have to figure out. And so maybe you've got a couple like that. Maybe you've got some, some Lukes in there. We talked about Luke last week. The, the guy who um, you always get called on to pray, that's me at family gatherings. It's like no one else can pray. It's always me. And maybe you've got one of those who's kind of like the family minister. Maybe you've got some shepherds in the room. So like the outcast of the family. The, the outcast really needs no introduction. It's like your family's cousin Eddie, you know, who's like always doing kind of crazy stuff. And if you don't think, if you can't identify who the, the cousin Eddie is in your family, then that means that it's probably you. I don't know who it may be. But everybody's got one. And so, and, and you can process through the thing, these things and think, man, there's somebody in my family that fits somebody in this story. And there's probably also one of these magi. And even though you're hesitant to call somebody in your family a wise man, um, probably fitting with the definition of being a seeker. Wanting to know if Jesus is real, wanting to just being a little skeptical of the whole thing, needs to be absolutely sure, not going to be somebody who says, I'm going to jump in and do the church thing and do the Jesus thing, and I'm going to jump in and do all that a little bit blindly. They would say, I would never, absolutely not do that. And maybe you're a hybrid of a couple of these things, but one thing's for sure is that one thing you do have is that you want some real answers. You don't want to be led astray. You don't want to be fooled. And so you connect with those magi there. And so you, that part of you, features in this part of the story. So here we go, Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And they asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And then King Herod hears that people are looking for another king. So if you're the king and people are looking for the king, but it's not you, then that's a big deal, right? So King Herod heard this and he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, so all the smart people you can imagine, and he asked them where the Messiah was to be born, it's funny because they knew exactly where he was, and they said, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod is thinking, what am I going to do? There's been another king born, and people are going to follow him. So in verse 7, then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too, and obviously not truthful here, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. Um, Pause for a minute. Let's talk about these magi. Uh, for one, let me tell you what these magi were not. They were not kings. This little magi right here has a crown, right? But that's not an accurate part of the story. We three kings of Orient are, that's totally off, okay? Magi are not kings. That's just some kind of legend that developed over time. The magi weren't kings. We don't have any idea if there were three of them or there were 12 of them or there were 150 of them. Scripture doesn't tell us sometimes 
these magi would travel in huge groups. Sometimes they would travel just a few. But one thing, but we get three because there are three gifts, and so we put three of them, and, and we don't really want 150 magi in this one little scene here. It doesn't really fit. So we don't have any idea how many of them there were. We know they didn't visit Jesus while he was still in the stable. They probably came to him at his house, and so this scene is a little bit off too. Here's what we do know about them. We know that Magi were people that absolutely wanted to know truth. So they showed up in Bethlehem, and and so they've got this indication from Scripture that there is a king that's coming, right? So they're people that have... So basically they showed up, and they went door to door. Scripture indicates that that they didn't just, the Magi didn't just walk into Bethlehem and say, or into Nazareth and say, hey, where is Jesus? You know, we can't, we, we heard that he was coming. The scripture seems to indicate that they were really eager to find this person, so they went door to door. And there was like such a stir in all of town of these people showing up and asking this question of everybody. They're asking so many people that, that word gets around to Herod that, uh, that there are people asking for a king. Because they absolutely, they weren't just casually seeking, they had to know if this was the king. These people, they lived their lives seeking not to be fooled. Um, Magi were people that believed in one God. They, they kind of trace back to this, this guy named Zoroaster. And, uh, and so there's a lot of story there, and you can look some of that up. It, it's kind of all over the place. But... but because of some of their background, they believed in one God, and they believed that maybe a Messiah would come or maybe some kind of Savior would come. But they weren't just going to take it at face value. If they heard that any of this was true, they kind of believed it, but they had to totally check it out for themselves. And that's absolutely who these people were. So they come, and they're looking, and they've been searching for a long, long time for this Messiah, trying to see if this is real. And after all their searching, searching in literally a thousand years of searching, followed by a physical search right here looking for Jesus, and then they finally find him. And here's what the Magi, these seekers, when they finally find what they're looking for, and they finally get in the presence of Jesus, look what happens. Verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, this is their first reaction to finding Jesus, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And sometimes when I look around, and and I've preached at a lot of different churches, you know, over time, and when I sit in church, the reaction I see to, to, to worshiping before Jesus is not people that are overjoyed. But these guys are overjoyed. Verse 11, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. I think the first thing, when these guys, these seekers, finally see Jesus, they're overjoyed. These guys had been studying Scripture for not because they were followers of God and not because they were Jews or any, or not because their parents did or their grandparents did and they wanted them to do it. These guys had been studying Scripture because they, wanted, they were just seeking truth. And they said the Bible is a potential source of truth. They've been studying it for a long, long time. And, and they recognized when they finally found Jesus, it was like, oh my gosh, everything from prophecy that was delivered 1,000, 1,500 years ago all of it is exactly right and exactly true in this child in this place. 
And so their people, after all this searching, had come to realize this is absolutely the Messiah that we've been looking for. And so the Greek word that talks about their worship means that they laid prostrate before him, which basically means they got down on their hands and knees and they bowed their heads low and they just began to worship. And if you're not sure what it looks like to follow Jesus, this is a pretty good picture. If you say, well, sort of, I go to church sometimes, I'm not sure if I'm in the the Christian crowd or not, you know, and if you're not exactly sure what it looks like, this is what it looks like. When you recognize the thing that you've been needing, and when you finally recognize that, that Jesus is in front of you and it's what you've been looking for, and you finally find, you know, this hope that you wanted, and you recognize that this is your future and your eternity is secured, you find Jesus and your reaction is to be overjoyed. And that's what it looks like to follow Jesus, is to be absolutely overjoyed that you have been saved by the Messiah. And all you can think to do is maybe be a little bit baffled and to say, thank you, God, you're great, I appreciate it. You try to put in some kind of words how you're grateful to God, and in doing so, you begin to, in doing so, you begin to worship. Then these magi begin to offer gifts, and you may not, when you begin to follow Jesus, you you, you definitely won't have a, a bunch of gifts with you and be like, oh God, here, you know, and send these into heaven, right? But when you begin to follow Jesus, you will absolutely say, everything that I have in this world, God, I give that to you. And in this moment, I recognize that you can do a lot more with it than I can. And in this moment, I give all of me to you. And so what it looks like to find Jesus is to be overjoyed and then to give yourself to him. And this is such a cool picture of that. And so for Jesus, a baby born in a barn who died outside of a city and a king for whom even this innkeeper couldn't find any room, these magi find some room in their hearts for Jesus. It's just cool how the story unfolds there. And then they begin to worship. Here's what I want you and me to know. I want you to know that this story is about you. This story is absolutely about you. And maybe you've been seeking some... Oh, I'm going to fall down. Maybe you've been seeking some truth or some meaning or some purpose or all those different kind of things. And, and maybe even especially at Christmas, you'd love to gather around the tree and it mean more than just handing some gifts and your kids being excited because you got them something expensive. And you'd love for all of it to mean a little bit more than that. And maybe even beyond Christmas, you'd love to know that you had a purpose bigger than just going to college and getting a job and making money and retiring to have kids who will get a job and make money and retire and just a a cycle of normalcy, hoping nothing terrible happens. And you'd love to see a little bit more purpose in all that. I think this Christmas, as you look at this real story, I hope that you'll begin to recognize some truth and just abandon whatever you've been chasing and just recognize that Jesus is the purpose of it all. Jesus is the purpose of the Christmas story. Jesus is the reason for living it all. And Jesus gives us 100% of our purpose. And then maybe you would just begin to enter in some joyful worship. I know for, I think that fleshes out in a couple ways as you begin to do that. I think maybe this year um, it's just you saying, instead of getting by the tree and we wake up early and we just tear into gifts, maybe it's you saying, I'm going to add some purpose starting with Christmas this year. 
And maybe we're going to, your family won't maul you on their way to the tree, right? Maybe you just stop everybody and say, can we just spend a moment in prayer? Can we just be thankful for what this is really about? Can we just take a moment to read the Christmas story? And at the very beginning, you just add some perspective to, to why we celebrate this at all. Maybe it flushes out like that. Maybe, maybe that's your recognizing purpose and beginning to worship. And maybe it goes way beyond Christmas, and maybe it's you considering this truth that you've been seeking. Or maybe it's you sharing truth with somebody who's been seeking some truth. And maybe it's you saying, maybe the thing that I've been searching for, or maybe I haven't even been searching for, but I knew I didn't have, maybe that purpose-filled thing, maybe that is Jesus. Maybe that's how you respond to this true Christmas story this year. Let me pray. God, we praise you. Um, I praise you not for what we made this story into, but God, I praise you for, for the real story. And I praise you for this story that, that shows us very clearly that we're included in your story. And you meant for us to hear it. And God, I pray that we would be people that wouldn't just hear the truth of who you are and just passively let that go. But we would be people that see that you are the reason for Christmas. You are our purpose and that we would be people that follow you. Lord Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, in just a minute, we're going to play some like instrumental here, and uh, and I just want to invite you to come forward for communion. Um, but I want you to just, in this moment, and I know you, you can smell the crackers, right? You're getting hungry. Um, but in this moment, as we kind of jump from the beginning of Jesus' life all the way to the end of it here on the earth, preparing our mind, propelling our mind to this reality that the baby that we celebrate at Christmas grew up and lived and died and rose again, and it's the same Savior that we celebrated Easter, and, and as, as we process that, walking through all that as we come do communion, maybe you'll say, Jesus, uh, this Christmas, I want to make it more about you than anything else. And so however that fleshes out, I'll do that. And so maybe during this time, that's what you're processing. Maybe as you come up, you say, for all that I've done in the life of the church, I've never actually said yes to you, Jesus. And, and, and I probably shouldn't even be taking communion because, right, communion is just me saying, Jesus, I'm with you. But as you come forward for communion, you begin to say, Jesus, I recognize that I'm a sinner and I am absolutely in need of you. And you would take the time to say yes. And say, Jesus, instead of chasing after me and chasing after the things that I want, I'm just going to turn that around and I'm going to chase after you. And then you would come for communion. So in a minute, this instrumental is going to play, and, uh, and I'm going to come down and take communion. You guys come as well.